like I say, in a tone of voice that we would never use with other people. We wouldn't be caught dead talking to our boss that way or our friends that way. And it's, I guess it's two sides of that. One is actually quite a negative, like we're holding out here. Of, you know, we, that's not very nice. It's an unpleasant tone of voice. Um, so that's a negative. The positive to that is actually we're feeling safe enough with someone to actually let out our dark sides, to let out the parts of us that are not very pleasant, you know, us on a really grumpy day, so I call that the goblin, like the goblin version of you is like a grumpy, competitive, ready to strike, score a point kind of version of you. And we all have that because we are human, right? So we don't want to see this as all bad. The fact that we do talk to our spouse in a way that we don't do to other people, often it means that we feel safe enough to let it all hang out, right? Welcome to the show. I'm Joe Horton. On the Guild of Dad show, we unwrap weekly the incredible stories, skills and expertise of the world's most captivating dads and experts along with the topics and stories that will captivate you and impact your life. If you're an existing listener, then thanks for tuning in each week and I appreciate the support that you're giving the podcast. If you just discovered Guild of Dads, then thanks for tuning in and I hope you find something that resonates with you on this episode and some of the other episodes that we've done. I appreciate you dads tuning in and getting behind the podcast. It spurs me on, motivates me and inspires me to forge ahead with Guild of Dads and help as many dads I can through the conversations we have. Conversations with fascinating individuals, best-selling authors, entrepreneurs and ultra-athletes, professors, anthropologists and also some ordinary dads just like you doing some extraordinary and impactful things. I want to have conversations with men, dads and experts to transfer practical knowledge, insight and expertise that you can apply to improve your physical health, mental health, relationships, career and the way you show up in the world as a role model to the next generation. Important conversations because the world is shifting so fast right now and getting clarity on this stuff means you can make an impact on yourself and at the same time on those around you. The question is, how do we connect effectively with our wives and partners? That's the topic of today's conversation. And often a lot of the advice around how to woo your wife and romance them comes often too late for some couples in their relationship breakdown. If the foundations of your relationship are on shaky ground, if you're not getting on as a couple initially, then that can be a problem. And apart from advice like work at it, very little specifics on the how of interacting in a relationship is given to many couples, which means that it often results in dead ends, false starts, frustration, and perfectionism. Today, I speak to clinical psychologist, couples therapist, founder of the practice, The Thomas Connection, as well as author, speaker, and podcaster, Michaela Thomas. Having written extensively around the subject of developing compassion for yourself and your partner in her book, The Lasting Connection, she also has a special interest in perfectionism and self-work and helps busy people let go of the pressures of perfection. We talk about the way in which couples speak to each other, the concept of flammability in relationships, the different methods you can use to remain present and how you can work to cool fight or flight in times of conflict. If you ever wonder how some of my amazing guests get to where they are in life, the athletes, the entrepreneurs, those making a massive impact on the world, I can tell you that pretty much all of them follow a very deliberate plan or system of some kind. 
This is exactly what I do too, and I'm revealing how you can implement a plan and system in your own life completely free in my ebook, The Dad Blueprint, over at guildofdads.com forward slash dad. And that's dad with a capital D A D. Incidentally, many of the people I interview on this show will be leveraging the power of similar systems to radically level up their lives and transform into the men and dads they always wanted to be. So you will be an amazing company. And now to my conversation with Michaela Thomas. Michaela, welcome to the Guild of Dads podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Likewise, likewise. I'm really pleased that you've come on to speak to us uh, this evening because I was intrigued when I originally spoke to you about what you actually do and, and how you help people in your and the book that you've written. But for those of uh, the people that are listening and watching, um, who is Michaela Thomas? Wow, that's quite a broad question. <laughs> Normally you get to ask questions like, what do you do or what's your work? But who is Actually, it feels like I could be here a while, but, you know, I'm, I'm many things. You know, from a professional point of view, I'm a clinical psychologist mm-hmm. and couples therapist and psychotherapist. Um, and I'm a founder of a private practice called The Thomas Connection. Uh, I'm also a wife and a mother of a little one. And I'm a Swede, as in I'm a, not the kind of root vegetable, but the one who comes from Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, that's kind of a, a little bit of an introduction. And I'm an author, like you mentioned, I've written a book called The Lasting Connection. And uh, I'm a podcaster, so I've got a podcast called Pause, Purpose, Play. So that's a little bit about me. Okay, okay. Um, and what's interesting about what I found out about you and the reason that we did connect was because I speak and I've spoken to a number of different kind of relationship experts on on this podcast. And one of the things that I mentioned to you when we, when we initially sort of touched base, uh, first of all, was that often a lot of the kind of the advice around relationships seems to be kind of quite structural and some of it is uh what i would kind of call a bit old school in terms of yeah well okay if you want to rekindle the relationship go out on some date nights or buy her a bunch of flowers or do this or do that and i think that um you have that that kind of things but you also that side of things but you also have the more sort of structural things which are kind of like yes you need to spend more time together and you need to um, you need to communicate better, or you need to listen better. But what I think often gets lost in this whole discussion around relationships is the actual concept of actually getting on as a kind of foundation point of the relationship. It seems as if that is a an area that kind of gets kind of jumped over and skirted around when it comes to discussing relationships. And what I liked about your book, The Lasting Connection, is it uses that as the, is its kind of starting point and builds up from mm. there. Um, so, and and the thing that you talk about a lot is is the importance of compassion in a lot in a for a long lasting relationship. What's your thoughts around that whole issue of kind of compassion? Well, I guess I think of it a lot as around kind of creating an atmosphere or almost like cultivating a garden mm-hmm. where you can plant some of those seeds that we are often given as helpful advice or recommendations of things to do. But like you're saying, unless we find a way to be with each other first, it's really hard to add in those extra things to do. And a lot of people try to add in these positives, like going on date nights or rekindling your love, doing fun things together when they have an atmosphere or kind of almost like a garden culture where there's actually not that 
fertile for that those things to go down in that soil. It's not necessarily that likely that things are going to sprout and grow and blossom. It's more likely that they're going to be put down in the soil and then just wither away and nothing happens because it's not fertile enough. It's not it's not conducive to doing just fun things together if you're having an atmosphere of contempt or criticism or hostility or fear or not feeling like this is a safe environment where you can talk to each other. If you express an opinion and your partner has a go at you or belittles you, you know, that can be as simple as let's go for a date night and your partner suggests going to to the movies, you know, back in the day when we're allowed to do those things. Mm. Uh, And the first thing that happens is that you fight over which film you're going to go to. And, you know, your partner says, I don't want to go to a crappy action movie. And the other one says, I don't want to watch this independent film about Korea. And then you have a big fight and one of you storms out. So, yeah, then you kind of think that the good suggestion, the helpful thing that's going to help you reconnect, adding some positives in, mm. can't really happen in an environment without reducing some of the negatives first. That's kind of how I think of it. The way we be, you know, the way we are and the way we're being with each other needs to come first so that we can create an environment where we can then add in some of these useful things we do. Mm, yeah. And I think the thing is as well is often couples in intimate relationships speak to each other in a way that, they, there's no way they would speak to like a, a relative or uh, some they work with or a customer or a supplier or anyone else you wouldn't speak to in the way that you do your your spouse. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that we get this kind of uh, this kind of attitude of contempt begins to creep in into intimate relationships? Yeah, yeah, it's a tricky one. And I guess when we get to the point of contempt. It's almost that's quite big warning signs, big warning bells, um, alarm bells ringing for me when I hear people speaking to each other with, with high levels of contempt. And, you know, relationship researchers like John Gottman have shown that that's one of the first sort of uh, horsemen of the apocalypse, as he calls it. And that's actually can be really difficult to bring back your relationship from that point after mm-hmm. you've had cr- criticism, contempt and hostility, um, or you're treating each other with kind of the silent treatment uh, that he calls stonewalling. Mm-hmm. Some of those things can be really difficult to pull yourself back from, but it can start even earlier than that, that you start to talk to each other with, like I say, in a tone of voice that we would never use with other people. We wouldn't be caught dead talking to our boss that way or our friends that way. And it's, I guess it's two sides of that. One is actually quite a negative, like we're holding out here of, you know, we, that's not very nice. It's an unpleasant tone of voice. Um, so that's a negative. The positive to that is actually we're feeling safe enough with someone to actually let out our dark sides, to let out the parts of us that are not very pleasant, you know, us on a really grumpy day. So I call that the goblin. Mm. Like the goblin version of you is like a grumpy, competitive, ready to strike, score a point kind of version of you. And we all have that because we are human, right? Mm. So we don't want to see this as all bad. The fact that we do talk to our spouse in a way that we don't do to other people, often it means that we feel safe enough to let it all hang out, right? Mm. We see that in our kids. Uh, For those of you who are listening, your parents, which I imagine quite a few, considering the name of the podcast, that when your kids come home from childcare or from school or whatever, and they're they're just letting it all rip out, right? When they come home, they're tired, um, and I guess sometimes that's called restrained collapse, right? They, they've been restrained all day, following rules, doing what they're supposed to be doing, talking to people nicely, being polite, and they come home to your safe environment and they let it all hang out, right? So we, we all know that kind of grumpy kids from school, they need a snack and they need some alone time. 
And us, us adult humans are no different. Mm-hmm. That unfortunately, just it means that your partner bears the brunt of that. Sometimes they get to see you from your from your really worst side, yeah. whereas other people get to see the pleasant version of you, the bit that you're holding together during the day when you go to work. So. Mm-hmm. Again, I want to make sure we talk about that from a human point of view rather than just blaming and shaming people for why you're being so unpleasant to your partner. When we have a reality check and understanding that that's going to be common, that's going to happen, we all have unpleasant sides, we can then think of bringing compassion to that by saying, what's going to be helpful rather than harmful for me to do in those moments when I am my goblin self, when I am a bit grumpy, how can I try to talk to my partner about that? Is it about having a conversation and figuring out potential triggers for it? Like my in my own relationship, I quite easily get hangry <laughs> and my partner can go much longer without eating than I can. So we know that one of my triggers is that, you know, when I haven't had a snack or having had food for quite a while, I get to be my goblin self. So we try to kind of get around that, but being aware that that's likely to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are the kind of the very early stages of contempt coming up, obviously, whereas you know, when I'm not hungry, I'm much more reasonable and much more eager to reach a good solution with my partner. So if you're listening and you kind of think, well, that's probably me. I'm not always very pleasant and nice. That's not the same as contempt, right? Mm. Contempt is much more about having a really negative regard of your partner that you mm. hold no respect for them or their opinion. You might do stuff like eye rolling when they're saying things or like, huffing and things like that are a bit more nonverbal mm-hmm. and you just get a kind of an atmosphere of hostility from them that really does need to be addressed and it's quite unusual for them for partners to be able to just come out of that on their own they probably do need some some professional input and help around kind of breaking those patterns mm-hmm. and what i found it kind of quite interesting as well what that you spoke about was this kind of concept of uh how people how flammable couples are i found that really i found that fascinating in terms of you know how kind of how you can bring kind of fire to the relationship and and how that and how that different that different kind of uh notion plays out within a relationship what does that what how does that look like the kind of flammability of a relationship is that just how easily things can blow up and get out of control or is it just a case of the different energies that people bring to the relationship yeah a a little bit like that it's sort of it's a measure of how easily things blow up but um often we look at those couples that are more explosive or flammable like I kind of coined that term in my in my book when I started thinking about how different couples were in my therapy room like some Mm. of the ones were you know, you had to give them time out. You know, one partner had to kind of go and, and cool down for a bit and then come back. And mm-hmm. and some couples, it was just all so pleasant. We couldn't get any sort of a, come into any of the anger or sadness or upset that was actually lurking underneath. Mm. So I thought of it as almost like a scale of that flammability. That And, and we I think we look at those explosive couples and say that they're the troublesome ones, that they're the ones who are likely to combust. But it's not necessarily that too much fire is the only thing that's uncomfortable, you know, where you have big explosive arguments. That's kind of the stuff we see on TV that's kind of very dramatized. But it can be equally problematic when you don't have enough of the fire going, where you're, you've kind of gone a bit flat in your relationship. Hmm. That means that you're not necessarily voicing your concerns. You get on fine day to day, but you might feel a bit more like you're living sort of with a flatmate. There's not really any big bust up so you don't really tend to disagree but you've also gone a bit sort of uh, kind of yeah. a bit you know a bit monotone or like you've drifted away from each other mm. and that's why i think of the analogy of a fire that 
if the flames are too high, nothing good can cook on that. You're just going to burn your pizza or burn your marshmallows. Whereas if it fizzles down to being nothing, then you can't cook anything on that either. Whereas we really want when we look at couples' relationships is the glowing embers that you can get to after a little while. They have to keep feeding the fire, though, so the flames don't go too high, but also don't fizzle out. Mm. So I started thinking about what it takes to keep a fire going, what you start a fire with and what keeps it going. So I thought of three different angles. And for anyone who's sort of been in the scouts or whatever, know how to set up a fire, they know that fire is not a thing, it's an event, right? So I've kind of learned about this in my induction training on the NHS, the many, many fire safety uh, trainings I've done. When you think of sort of the, um, the, the three different angles to it, that you need fuel, you need heat, and then you also need oxygen, right? So the fuel, I started thinking about all the different couples I'd seen in the therapy room, how different they all were, the different stories, the different narratives, the different life experiences, different temperaments, attachment styles that people were bringing because they were different humans. Like mm. each unique human comes with their own story. That's their fuel that they bring into the fire. And that's why, like you're saying, you know, we can be so different with different partners. Like actually we're some f- more flammable with, with with previous ex than we are with a current partner or, or vice versa. And that's because our fuels react differently on another person's fuel. Okay. And then also you have the heat, which is the generated heat. So how flammable that is and how much heat do you get is the level of expressed emotion you have. Some people aren't very hot, right? I'm generally more hot in my temperament than my husband is. So that's not that I'm better and he's worse or the vice versa. We're just different. So I generate more heat, which means I have more peaks and troughs and he's much more even in between in his temperament. So that means that I'm generally hotter, right? So having an awareness of that means that you can you can work with it. And lastly, oxygen is the air you breathe into your fire. When are we coming back to contempt and hostility? If that's kind of the air you're breathing into your fire, it's much more likely to be explosive. Whereas if you're breathing in air of empathy, understanding, compassion, self-awareness, and saying things like, well, I am a bit hotter in my temperament than my husband. So sometimes we need to be aware of that, making sure that I have a good snack before we have a big, important conversation. So I'm fueled up and can can talk about it, right? Mm. Because we bring different life experiences, different genetics, or different fuel is just different. Yeah. Right. So that all of those things helps us make a good understanding, come to a good understanding of this unique couple and that we are, or that in my case that I have in front of me, I look at how those things react and kind of almost like create a spark. Mm-hmm. And when the, the fire has been turned up too high and when the fire needs to be turned up a bit more. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because I've seen that before as well, where you where you often, where you can have couples that where there, where there is someone that might be passive aggressive slightly passive aggressive so they'll kind of let stuff stew for a while and then not say anything not say anything not say anything and then all of a sudden it just goes and and often the other partner is well hang on a minute i didn't even realize anything was wrong until they've just kind of blown up about it sort of thing so there's different there's different dynamics that you mentioned in the book in terms of these different sort of structural uh, structures to couples relationships in terms of how they interact and the kind of yin and yang of it absolutely that's definitely hmm. it's a cultural aspect of that as well as part of, of kind of coming into the fuel as well if you've grown up in a in a geographical location where that might be more accepted i mean kind of looking at differences between say south america and northern europe 
um, that that can be a difference in how expressive you are with your emotions and how loud or kind of visual or, or vivid in your gestures you might be versus how much you might be passive aggressive. Whereas, mm. you know, in Sweden, if you have a conflict with someone, you leave them a post-it note in the, in the communal <laughs> laundry room. So, uh, so I wouldn't dare knock on their door and say, excuse me, can you come and get your laundry? I would leave a post-it, right? So there's, uh, you know, different levels of what's socially acceptable in, in the wider kind of geographical national culture, yeah. but then also what's been acceptable within your own family culture. You know, mm. each, each kind of household has got their own culture. So what you witness your, your parents doing in their own relationship, how they've modeled love and respect and understanding, how they've modeled how to resolve conflict, all of that will have a bearing on how you yourself approach adult relationships and those mm. kind of conflicts. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you touch upon that, Fun enough, because it's something I've become aware of even more so as my children have grown up in the sense that like when you're in your 20s, and maybe even 30s and people say they make the suggestion oh you're 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 kind of a little bit like your mum or you're a bit like your dad you're like no I'm not no I'm not I'm nothing like them I'm nothing like them until that is that you have children and then all of a sudden you find yourself saying to your children stuff that your parents said which is kind of great if it's uh if it's what I would term something that you're kind of cool with an attribute of your parents that you kind of actually quite enjoyed and you thought was empathetic and compassionate and stuff but then when a side of your parent comes out in you that you really didn't like about your parent then you then you kind of have this kind of internal battle with actually I don't actually like that behavior and you're like where have I learned this and then you realize like in my case I'll think of stuff you know I I'll do a behavior and I think actually where have I learned that and I realize mm. that I've learned it from my dad because that's how he used to be so and what hap- what I think happens is we end up this behavior pa- these behavior patterns often they can skip from from parent to to son or daughter and then from son or daughter to their son and these are kind of replaying every 20 or 30 years when each when each generation has their own kids and it's that's kind of that's a mad concept to get your head around when you realize that you're trying to break the chain of it if that makes any sense it does and it's it's a really tricky one because i mean it can range from like little odd quirks of what you used to do and and things that you really enjoyed like um teaching things like traditions like the easter bunny or santa mm. or whatever that you think actually i really enjoyed that when i was growing up i really make make sure that i kind of pass on those little nuggets to the next generation now that can be when it's much more linked to values that you mm. also agree with versus when it's something that was actually detrimental to you and had a negative impact on you when you were growing up. Those are the things we want to break the kind of break the past patterns from. And that can be really hard, especially if some of those patterns are not consciously there. Like we're not actually aware of, of doing it and acting out almost like a ghost in the machine. It's like something from the past that we're not quite uh, aware of. Mm. So a lot of the time that happens within couples relationships as well, where you're not just reacting with the situation in front of you. You're also acting out something that happened with a previous partner. So for Mm. instance, if you've been treated badly by an ex who cheated on you, or, you know, you've experienced infidelity that way, you might be a little bit more on the lookout for danger with your current partner, even though there's been necessarily no evidence that your current partner would ever treat you that way. Mm. So a lot of us are just, well, all of us are just functions of our past experiences and a lot of us are kind of can get a little bit paralyzed by that when we don't see the difference between the present and the past. Mm-hmm. And that can then be brought into the future. So in the book, I talk a lot about how our mind is a bit of a 
time traveler. I can travel to the the past and dwell on past mistakes and rehash things that have already happened. And it can time travel to the future where we worry about worst case scenarios that haven't yet happened. Mm-hmm. And that's some interesting research of, from, from Harvard University showing that we are present in the moment um, Actually, not not very much, but half of the time. So 47% of the time, we're going somewhere else in our minds. We're not thinking about what we're doing in the present moment. And when we have awareness of that, that that's just human, we drift away. And especially in our digitally distracted society, where there's always something bidding for your attention, like here's a message on your smartphone or something you heard on the radio, it's really hard to stay focused on your partner. So A, we have all of these things that shaped us through no fault of our own before we were even conscious of much of anything. And that fuel has followed us into our adulthood. And then we meet people we fall in love with. And there we are time traveling away from the current present moment where we could become more aware of what on earth are we actually doing in this moment, acting out the stuff that my dad did or that my mom did. And that makes it really tricky for relationships to to function because not everyone has that level of self-awareness that they've read, you know, self-improvement books or relationship books or listened to podcasts. But that's a a great tip Mm. for starting to become more aware, to have a little bit more sort of, I'm slightly more awake and aware to what's going on. And I can look at myself from the outside to think, oh, so the thing I just did that we had a big blowout about, I might still be mad at my partner for something they said or did, but what did I do? Can I take a look at myself in the mirror and wonder, did I do anything that contributed to this? Not blaming yourself, being horrible to yourself, calling yourself names by saying, oh, hand on my heart here. Was there anything I did that wasn't particularly helpful? Could I have done anything else differently? What will I do de- next time to try to come out of that stuckness? You know, that that takes a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. That's why we talk about courage as being a part of compassion, having the courage to look at yourself, to look at the shaping of you, all that fuel, and all of these different situations that you get stuck in with your partner, it takes courage. It's a lot easier to just go, yeah, whatever, and and just carry on watching TV. Mm, you know, yeah. it's a lot easier to just say, oh, you know, I don't want to talk about it. Let's just put the telly on and see if there's something good on. But that's, we can kind of stay stuck in there. It's almost like choosing the matrix or the, uh, you know, which pill you, you choose to take and continue to live in the, uh, oblivion or you get to see the matrix for what it actually is and then you can choose to take action and decide what you want to do in your relationship yeah yeah and you touch upon an important point there because i think there is an element in us all where we just want to kind of stick our head in the sand and kind of not be not kind of be aware but awareness is a word that you've used a number of times in this conversation this evening and i know it's for good for for good reason because i think that this kind of underpins a lot of the teachings specifically in the latter part of your book when you're you know delving into kind of uh, mindfulness and and pra- and practices that are bringing you into your kind of awareness and and the observing self and what is actually kind of going on with your kind of what I would what I would term you the thought machine of your brain that's that's what I tend to yeah. co- tend to call it um but it's but I think it's it's difficult like you like you say in this kind of in the modern world to kind of snap out of the distraction mode and autopilot and get into the and get kind of into this awareness what sort of practices can couples actually do on a kind of practical level to actually kind of begin to kind of tap into this into this because like I know it's a game it's a game changer and it takes practice and it takes you're not going to get it right all the time and this feeds into this whole thing of perfectionism and self-compassion but what are some of the tips that you can use to kind of begin to tap into that awareness a bit more? 
Yeah, I would I would say just start with what feels natural to you because there's so many ways into becoming more mindful. I mean, we can use the word awareness, or we can use mindfulness or, you know, enlightened or whatever you want to call it. So being a bit more aware of the present moment means that you're able to see what's happening, you know, so you can kind of see what's happening in your body as you're feeling it. So I'm feeling a sensation in my stomach or my my fingers are starting to tingle. Or you can watch and notice any urges you have, like I have an urge to just actually just walk away from this conversation and end it rather than continue to talk about it right that's that's an impulse or an urge that when we're not aware of kind of being able to tune in it's almost like you tune into a radio station if we are kind of tuned out that means that we're kind of on that static in between the stations so you're not really hearing anything so it's a conscious act of tuning in on purpose to what you're feeling in your body what's going through your mind what are you thinking about um you know any like you said what comes up in that thought machine um, and also how you're feeling emotionally, you know, being able to label that as it's occurring is really powerful. And even, you know, I, I teach people the most basic tip in how to tell the difference between a thought and a feeling. And it's remarkable how many people don't know this because we don't get taught this in school. But a feeling is a one word answer. Usually an emotion is a one word answer, whereas a thought is usually a sentence, even though we might say, I feel like it's all your fault. Well, that's no, you're not actually feeling that. You're there's a thought that you're having. I feel it's all your fault. It means that I'm having a thought that this is all being caused by you, right? And the feeling I might have, if if that thought was to be true, and I might feel that it's very true to me in that moment, is I'm really irritated or annoyed or angry or in you know there's a sense of injustice there. So that will be the one word answer. There's emotion that matches the thought. And when we practice being a bit more aware, kind of tuning into these things, what am I thinking as I'm thinking it? What am I feeling as I'm feeling it? Then it becomes more kind of um, straightforward or how we can then talk to our partner about that. I'm having a thought that, this, that I'm, I'm getting really irritated. I'm noticing I'm feeling really irritated and I'm, I'm kind of having some unfair thoughts, I'm sure, that it's all your fault, but I want to talk about it and see how we can come forward to a different solution. I'm just feeling really angry right now and I, I'm noticing that my body's so tense that I'm not sure anything good is going to come from this conversation until I get to calm down a bit. Can we take a breather? Can we take five minutes? And if you don't have that awareness, you were just going to keep rehashing the conversation and try to score the point and try to win. And maybe even, like we said earlier, belittle your partner. Mm. So that means because that's what the angry version of you wants to do. It wants to win. It wants to, um, it wants to prove the other person wrong. It wants to get the apology. And in my book, I show you how to try to tune into the different versions of you that might want different things. So we can use a compassionate version of you to also say, actually, yeah, I know there's an angry part of me that you know something has been wronged here and maybe I want to get to a point where we can have an apology. But I also know that my partner didn't do this on purpose and you know they're really upset as well. We're both butting heads here. How do we take a break from this and come back to it? Hmm. So to answer your question of how do we then start to do these things in a basic, simple way, but it's again, find your way into it. Some people find they like to use an app with seated meditations and use kind of a guiding voice to tell them what to do to notice different things in their body and kind of use a mindfulness meditation. Some people cannot uh, make space or time for that in their lives. And that's fine too. It's just, isn't, doesn't float their boat. Mm. So for them, it might be that they're able to take a few calming breaths and like even just feeling the, the action of drawing the breath in and then slowly releasing it out. I'm kind of noticing where does that go in my body? So that can take me three seconds or six seconds. 
right? It doesn't have to take me very long to take a few mindful breaths. Some people like to do something more tactile. You know, a, a quick tip that I give to people to understand what mindfulness is to to lie in your bed in the morning and before you bounce out of bed, and hopefully before your kids bounce on you, just wiggle your toes around. You know, feel the feel the sheets against your toes. Feel how if they're cool or if they're warm, if they're soft or smooth. You know, feeling that sensation against your toes. It's a very basic mindfulness thing. And you might be able to keep your attention on that for a second or two. Then in that very moment, you've been mindful. And then you get distracted by your kids. And if you notice that, oh, I get distracted. Or your partner says something. And you get distracted. And you steer your attention back to your toes wiggling on the sheet. That is mindfulness. Mm. The act of steering your attention back at will to whatever you want to focus on is mindfulness. Mm. A lot of people think that if I get distracted, I've drifted away, I've kind of failed at this, I'm not being mindful. It's not at all how it is. It's um, a classic Buddhist monk saying is that if you drift away a thousand times, you see your your attention back a thousand times. So for some people, it's making a mindful cup of tea, putting the kettle on, watching the kettle boil, rather than doing anything else at the same time, rushing around, multitasking, you just stand there and you breathe. Mm. And you just watch the kettle get hotter and hotter and hear that sort of sizzling and the bubbling and the, the the hotter air coming out. And then you pour it up very slowly, feeling the hot cup in your hands, drawing the smells and the scent of the tea, etc. All of that is mindfulness in daily life. Mm. So it does not have to be really complicated. And in the book, I give some simple suggestions of things you can do. And the, the book comes with... Um, audio exercises if you do want to do the sort of seated meditations if that floats your boat but again it doesn't have to be complicated you know yeah. the internet is your friend as well you can google stuff on youtube there are apps and lots of things out there for you, for you to practice with so yeah. i guess that's sort of coming into the sense of if i'm doing something to notice what i'm feeling in this moment how am i feeling right now it's almost like checking the weather forecast for for your inner world and then if you say oh it's sunny right then you'll be mindful mm. oh it's actually quite cloudy Oh, you've been mindful, right? So that's does that kind of give you an idea that it does yeah. not have to be complicated? Yeah, and I think, it, again, it comes back to what works for you, I suppose, because I know some people can easily sit on a mat for like 20 minutes, half an hour and meditate. Other people prefer to do mini meditations over the course of the day. And what people would be surprised to hear is that there's a lot of times where you were, you are probably being mindful and you've not realised it. Like I realised that... I'm generally kind of quite mindful if I'm mowing the lawn or if I'm going for a walk or in in the woods or whatever. It's, it's when you're kind of, you're in the moment and you don't even realise that you're in the moment, but you're in the moment and, you're, and your thoughts are just in the moment and not kind of drifting. They might drift and then they come back. And mm. so people don't realise that they are actually inadvertently being mindful, probably at quite a few points in the day, in a typical day anyway, aren't they? So... Washing Absolutely. dishes is another one. John Cabot John Cabot Zinn talks about I think washing dishes is one of his, yeah. isn't it? So, but uh, yeah, I quite like that. I like to, I like uh, laundry folding. You know, <laughs> not if I'm in a, in a hurry or anything, or if there's a massive pile of laundry. But that's something that can be quite meditative in itself. That doing a physical act or a physical movement uh, whilst you're whilst you're in the present moment. Some people mm. feel a bit more anchored down into the present moment by that, or having something to observe. Uh, but it can be as simple as just eye gazing, like looking mm. out the window, 
looking at the view and that means you're kind of resting your eyes a bit away from the screen that can be quite meditative in itself as well just looking out at, at your plants outside the window for a few minutes yeah so it does not have to be very complicated and i think that's just finding something that feels appealing to you you know my husband is much more able to you know go and he can stare at our fish in our fish tank and let's watch that for mindfully for a bit and um, but I prefer more seated meditations at times as well. So we, we just have very different ways in and mm. he would have never put his hand up to say, I like mindfulness, but he's actually doing really mindful things without realizing. Yeah. Yeah. And some people do, don't they? What in terms of like us, to, we've just been sort of delving into kind of how we kind of cool the flames a little bit when we're going into these, di- you know, these difficult conversations and high stress conversations. But there are, other things that are going on under the bonnet so to speak in terms of our uh, sympathetic comparison sympathetic nervous systems and our fight or flight uh, response and that is kind of a deeply kind of evolutionary uh, feature of human beings that we're in, in in some sense we're applying skills in order to kind of counteract this a little bit or certainly slow it down and one again one of the things that really came across in the book is this notion of slowing stuff down a little bit Mm. rather than speeding things up and ramping up the heat and ramping up the speed to actually slow stuff down in order to kind of actually connect with the state that you want to be in in your relationship um what what how does that kind of what does your brain do when you are getting into this kind of fight or flight i know obviously your heart rate quickens and your brain and your thoughts begin to race as it as it's preparing for fight or flight. Yeah, the 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 most common thing that impacts on relationships that you see from the fight or flight is that obviously the the tendency to step into your defensive strategies because the brain operates on a better safe than sorry basis. Mm-hmm. So when you are feeling threatened, as in we get into our threat system, that's when we get the fight or flight, as we get the adrenaline pump in, we are going to go for things that will keep us safe. So again, that's a reality check. It's just human. It's just what we all do. Um, So we can do things to kind of counteract that in the moment to try to soothe and calm down the threat response. Well, like you mentioned, the sympathetic nervous system gets activated. And what we can do is then to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, the sort of the rest and digest or the, calm and connect the sort of the way we soothe ourselves to be feeling again a bit more able to switch on our thinking brain because what happens when the threat system is activated is that the parts of our brain that are kind of really taking charge taking ownership of you are the things that are quite basal kind of the basic things that we share with reptiles and mammals and that's where our kind of emotion systems sit in the brain kind of deep deep seated in the brain so that means that your thinking brain that's kind of more more unique to humans that one gets a bit switched off because it's not as needed. And that means that the parts sits here in your frontal lobes, um, they're all the things that humans are really good at, you know, putting people on the moon and coming up with cures for, for, you know, coronavirus stuff. Um, All of that thinking and solution and problem solving and perspective taking, it's just switched off. So you're not actually very good at thinking it. So that's where you kind of like, you fight like, you know, two, two raging wolves instead of fighting like humans, which might be able to take the other person's perspective, disagree with it, but kindly and respectfully say, well, actually, this is how I see it. And you see it that way. You know, we come to a dilemma. How do we discuss it? That's not what we do when we're flooded with threat hormones, right? So 
we want to just be aware of that, that it's almost like we left the window of tolerance. We've left any opportunity to connect and problem solve together. And all we have is butting heads. All we have is just like trying to come up with um, the next argument to win the point. And for the, the partners who may be more likely to go into the flight rather than the fight, they might withdraw, they might pull away, they might leave the conversation. And we get then a classic withdraw and demand pattern between a lot of couples where one person pursues and say, just talk to me, just say something, why aren't you listening? And the other person is so flooded by threats, hormones, that they just go into shutdown and they can't think straight and they just want to escape and they want to run away. So they walk out of the room and their pursuing or demanding partner follows them into the next room and the conversation and the fight continues. And I'm sure people listening have had that where you're like, I'm just done with this. I don't want to talk anymore. And the other person just pursues and picks, 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 picks a fight, right? Um, So we have to understand that what's going on there is the two different defensive strategies. One has gone into their fight and the other one's gone into their flight or even that we talk about freeze, like I said, the shutdown or appease, which is a, a pleasant one that you can see where one partner just wants the threat to end and they will agree to anything to just make the threat go away. So they will appease the other partner by folding to their wishes. And that's where we sometimes call people pleasing. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, fine, you win. I don't care. <laughs> and then they just say like, okay, okay we'll, we'll do that then. We'll, we'll pick that film or whatever. Uh, and they just fold. And that might mean, like you said, the passive aggressiveness comes, you know, weeks and months later, feeling like I've been so put upon and never get my way through that they can actually feel like a bit of a volcanic rupture comes Mm. after I've been folding so many times and now I can't stand up to you. So now I'm going to have an explosion. Right. So that's really, really important to keep in mind that that's what happens to your brain when you're really, really upset. So if you're arguing about something, um, it can be really helpful to try to think of how do I keep kind of how do I reduce the heat somewhat hmm. and something that can sounds really silly but can really help is to kind of agree on on a timeout uh, and doing something else that distracts your mind a little bit so you can calm down like playing go fish or something silly like that yeah. or um, take picking up your knitting or I don't know sending an email or whatever something that distracts you away a little bit and then say we're going to reconvene in 20 minutes like yeah. give yourself enough time for your heart rate to regulate down again, for your body to calm down. But if you leave the room thinking we're having time out and you leave the room, and you sit there and stew on reasons why you're going to win, then that's not you calming down. That's you ramping up. Whereas if you leave the room thinking we're doing this because I want to be able to kind of have a connection still, I still want to be able to get along with my partner and they deserve you know, a decent version of me, mm. then you can go and go sit in another room and breathe, take some deep, deep breaths or do something with, with your hands, like having a fidget spinner or whatever you want to do. And then you come back again and think, actually, I've calmed down a bit. I still stand by the point that I made, but I made it too angrily. I'm sorry. Mm, right. Yeah. So you don't have to change your viewpoint. You can just deliver your viewpoint in a way that your partner can then hear without getting so threatened by it. I'm going to jump in here very quickly. If you have listened for any period of time, you will know that I place a massive value in having a group of other men around you to elevate what you think is possible for yourself. I want to tell you about the exclusive brotherhood I've put together called the Dad Circle, which is a group of dads committed to improving themselves in a number of areas in order to become the men and dads they always wanted to be. Not just this, but hardwired into the fabric of this brotherhood are a number of features, including weekly Zoom calls, monthly topics, challenges and assignments, together with a growing library of resources, 
fitness and mental challenges. You'll get just the accountability that you're looking for when you're surrounded by a group of other men looking to level up and go on a journey in exactly the same way. If this resonates with you and you would like to find out more, head on over to www.thedadscircle.com forward slash join. That's thedadscircle.com forward slash join. Yeah, I, I can see that because I think the thing is, is you get so caught up in the heat of it that you just not think thinking straight. And I think it's important for uh, listeners and people that are watching this as well to understand the kind of mechanics and the neurological and physiological mechanics that go on when this is happening because I think when you understand that a little bit more you you know we're talking about compassion you, you you're more inclined to say well actually I'm kind of fighting against evolution here a little bit so I do need to cut myself a little bit of slack rather than thinking <laughs> actually I'm a really bad person because I've just flown off the handle actually but but that's kind of a perfectly normal human response that we're just trying to, we're not trying to say that it's, you shouldn't have it, but it's a case of let's try and cool that off a little bit so that we don't um, end up in an endless conflict situation, a non-stop conflict situation. Absolutely. Cause mm. if we add the level of blame and shame as saying, you know, why did I fly off handle? And we can see this a lot in parenting. There's so, so many parents who are hard on themselves for having, you know, lost that proverbial shit with their, uh, with their kids. And again, it's normal and human to be provoked by things, to lose your patience, to sometimes react, to feel aggressive. All of that is built into us as humans. And, and, and you don't see other mammals being like horrible to themselves for their natural normal responses. Like wolves don't say, you have such an anger issue. What's wrong with you for growling at your partner? Like they don't do they don't do that. They if they're angry and threatened, they growl. Mm. So um, so we have to just understand that we do have an element of growling as well. We have an element of all of these things, and just we have unfortunately the brain that is so weird and wonderful that we have the capacity to be hard on ourselves for all of these things that we unfortunately do through no fault of our own. So it's not giving you like a carte blanche to be you know, a horrible person to your partner. I'm not saying, oh, well, evolution just made me angry so I can just let it out. It's much more of understanding that, well, that's, that's understandable and it's likely that our time cell will be triggered and what's going to be helpful rather than harmful for me to do in those moments when I do get really triggered. You know, actually it might be that you take ownership for your responses. If you are the more explosive version, it might be that you have to say, when I get that angry, I need, I'm going to need 20 minutes to calm down so I can come back and we can have a better conversation. Not in the moment, but talking about it as a general, you know, mm. actually, you know, we had a big fight last week and I've been thinking about it. I, I didn't feel good about how I acted. It wasn't a version of me I'm very proud of. And I think, in those moments, I can't, I can't help it. I get so angry and it's not fair on you that I let that out. So I, it might be helpful if I get to spend 20 minutes in the, in the room and you don't follow me. And I promise I will come back out and we will talk about the thing that whatever it is that you want to discuss, but I think we're going to have a better outcome if I get a chance to cool down a bit. If I walk around the block and then I come back in, what would you think? Does that sound yeah. reasonable? Yeah, yeah. kind of thing yeah, yeah. so you're offering that again awareness you're offering that i took a good look at myself in the mirror i didn't really like what i saw what do i do about it 
without being unkind to yourself um, or asking kind of unreasonable things of yourself. You're not going to be able to have a lobotomy and be a completely different person all of a sudden. We kind of stopped doing that a few hundred years ago. Uh, there used to be the solution in psychology to stick an ice pick in the brain and just root around and see if you damaged enough stuff to turn some of these things off. But there are obviously un- unintended consequences to doing that. We want to remain human. We want to remain the people we are. It's just more about making very slight, gentle tweaks to the person you are with kindness and compassion. Mm. So rather than saying, I must not, must never be angry. That's not what we're trying to say. We're just say, when I get angry, what's going to be helpful for me to do is X, Y, and Z. Mm. Yeah. And I think what one of the things that, I, that I've really kind of noticed about your work as well, one of the things that you have a particular kind of passion for is this whole notion of perfectionism. And the thing that I hear more than anything else from particularly dads actually because predominantly mm. I'm I'm speaking to dads is uh, is there's no one that is going to beat you over the head with a stick in the same way as you would yourself and you and 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 from the dads I speak to they have a lot more self-compassion for other people than they do for themselves and 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 I, I wonder how this actually kind of plays out in intimate relationships because they're they're so hard on themselves that it it ends up being kind of you know you talk about the inner critic in your book this inner critic and this perfectionist and stuff and it's interesting because when I when I think back years ago perfectionism was seen as quite a virtue but now I think it's all actually as I've got older it's actually it's actually in a lot of ways a curse everyone I know that claims to be a perfectionist it actually ends up in a curse because they just don't do anything because they're scared of not doing it correctly or worried about being ridiculed or laughed at or that someone's going to judge them and that. And yeah, even to the point of like decorating a room, you know, we all know people that like, well, I like to do it. We, there's, there's people that will kind of decorate a room and they'll do it in like a, a day. They're just doing a day, and they're like, "Oh, knock out decorating a room," and then you sort of walk, and, and then you sort of walk in, and you're kind of like, mm, "Maybe you should spend a little bit longer than a day on this sort of thing." But then you have other people on the other end of the spectrum who would like they'll take four weeks decorating a room because all of the lines have to be, you know, and it and it and it borders on. Sometimes it does seriously border on kind of OCD or you mm. know stuff like that, but. What I'm getting at is, is perfection can be a real curse for a lot of people rather mm. than something that's a virtue, you know what I mean? Well, unfortunately, to house it as, as a virtue still. I mean, it's, it's the kind of um, sometimes kind of seen as a, an addiction you get praised for. You know, it's mm. something that you're hooked onto and you want to do and you get praised for it because you get, um, uh, you get a pat on the head when you reach your achievement. And I think the tricky thing is that you paint that scenario of the, the person's uh, standards around the decorating. Imagine how tricky that gets if one partner is person A and one partner is person B. You know, like, oh, don't worry about cutting in. That's doesn't matter. You just, you just paint a bit. And the other person goes, oh, no, you can't paint outside the lines. Like, this, it's just kind of a smudge. It's terrible. And imagine the amount of fighting that there would be around those different yardsticks because who is right, mm. right, quote, unquote, right? What is the correct 
standard to have when one decorates a room. I mean, it's impossible to decide those things. I guess that, that's why I often come back to the concept of workability. Like, how workable is this? If one person feels like I just need to get this done quickly and the other person sees them as sloppy or, you know, making mistakes and having to kind of redo things because they, they don't take enough time to plan and to execute, there might be that the that quicker partner that feels that the more rigorous partner is, well, like I said, rigorous. They're, they're too structured. They, they, they can't really get their act together. We don't get anywhere and they just they they're too long, take too long, they slow us down. So there's pros and cons from each kind of way of being. And often, you know, I mean the balance is often the case of finding some sort of happy middle ground where you can think, well, maybe if we disagree on this, then we hire a professional. Or maybe if we disagree on this, we think about, you know, is it reasonable to spend two days rather than one and two days rather than five? Right? You know, what is the sort of medium where we kind of think it's okay to maybe then, okay, well, if there's smudges, then you're you're allowed to go and, and paint over those. If I smudge the gray paint in the ceiling, you can paint over with the white paint or whatever. So uh, it's, it's again about finding compromise rather mm. than sacrifice because the person who feels I want it to be done conscientiously and you know in a structured way it's going to feel like the pants are on fire when they're just like I can't stand this like you're just you're ruining it and the person who is much more flexible and spontaneous might be sort of um feeling that the other person is is a right blocker that takes far <laughs> too long to do things right so these things I often see in my in my therapy room are finding sort of discussions of what is a happy medium how do we find compromise how do we get shifted forwards uh, and when there is perfectionism present I mean we we kind of joking about it as um, being about you know being too precious about cutting in lines in the ceiling but at its, at its worst it's you know it, it can give rise to clinical diagnosis like you said OCD mm. so perfectionism, perfectionism in itself is not a diagnosis it's kind of an umbrella term that can hold a few different th things underneath it like anxiety disorders like types of OCDs um panic attacks if we feel really really overwhelmed and overworked that our nervous system is constantly switched on and we're tense um, we can be actually quite depressed if we feel that I constantly fail at things like he's mentioning those dads who are beating themselves with that with that stick they might be feeling like I'm a terrible dad I'm not good enough as a dad I don't you know it's not the father I want to be or maybe I'm failing my kids all of that inner criticism that we have, that self-criticism can lead to us feeling really low about ourselves, feeling like we're failed. Um, so that's, there's a lot of things to fit underneath perfectionism. So the, the important thing is to be aware of, is this costing you more than it's worth, right? If it's a virtue, that's usually when it's been serving us, it's been workable. I'm a conscientious, um, careful person, I'm thorough, and I plan my actions and I get a good result. Okay, great. That might mean that you're striving for an excellent result. So the point is that we're striving for excellence is okay, but when we're striving for perfection, we'll get stuck. Hmm. And then you tend to see one or two things. Either you see someone working in overdrive, they're doing everything and anything, and you know you never see them sitting still, they're never sort of resting, constantly overworked, or you see them being paralyzed, right? So they've, they've got such high standards that they don't, can't even start on decorating that room because it's overwhelming the prospect of picking all the different paint samples that they would have to go through to pick the right perfect color first off and then if they were going to hire a decorator they would have to shortlist 20 people and go through all of those recommendations or reading yellow reviews or whatever to find the quote-unquote perfect person yeah. so 
you never then get started and they often find that they give up because it's overwhelming. It's, it's so strenuous. Also, then they re- realize they didn't get to the point of finishing. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of linked to procrastination that yeah. the, like I said earlier, that the partner who is able to take action and get going, yes, it might occasionally be sloppy, but at least they don't procrastinate to the same extent. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's, and it shows up so differently from person to person. And that's where perfectionism can be much more of a hindrance or a curse because it makes us feel like we're not achieving things. Mm. So the very thing you want to do, which is striving for achievement, sometimes you actually fall short and don't get stuff done. And that Mm. can feel like it triggers that sense of self-criticism and like I failed again. Yeah, yeah. And I think I I use decorating as an example just because it's one of those, it's just one of those things that always, every married couple I speak to, decorating always comes up as like one of those things and on dad's forums it's always decorating oh my wife helped me with decorating this weekend and it was a nightmare (laughs) sort of thing it's because just because it's one of those dynamics where you're thrown together and you've got to you've got to do it and stuff but I think I think what's what I I often post about this on on social media uh, and and I struggled with this you know when I first started Guild of Dads as you know, you do you do your own podcast as well, and there is this there is that bit before you go on air and before you hit the record button and stuff, and you're like, "Have I done this? Have I done that?" And you know, you go through this kind of, and then you hit the record button. And you're like, "Right, it's too late to do anything now. You 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 just got to kind of go with it." And it's this kind of an inherent beauty in that because one of the things I often say in my posts, social media posts, is that is that you've got to be willing to kind of get muddy in life and it's got to, because I think the thing is, is we all want stuff and people won't be able to, um, won't be able to see this if they're listening, but we all want stuff to be in kind of like neat little squares that kind of like, oh yeah, that's a really nice neat little square that we can, that that, uh, I can put it in a neat little box and it's got sides on it and they're all level and even and whatever. But life isn't like that. And I think that my biggest kind of, gains if you like in life have come from when I actually are willing to just say actually no it's going to be scrappy it's going to look rough uh my first attempt is going to look bad uh but once I've kind of done it then I can think actually how can I and there's a there's a there's a there's a beautiful video that um Jordan Peterson has released called I think it's stumble into the light it's on YouTube if, if anyone listening wants to look it up but it's really, it's a lovely video. It's a bit sort of motivational cheesy, but but the, the premise of it is is that you you have to make a fool of yourself in order to in order to kind of grow and, and do stuff. And I think I just think so many people they worry about that so much and it just mm. paralyzes them with fear, both on an individual level, but also I think in their relationships as well, because because from an individual point of view, it's oh, I'm gonna be scared about being judged and whatever or oh if my partner sees me fail at this then they're going to think worse of me that I'm not this kind of you know this amazing man that they had me up to be that can that can play football and that can fix stuff and that's got a really nice car and has got this great job in the city do you know what I mean it's just yeah it's this facade we kind of keep going so um, which I think is something that definitely affects men and women differently and then thinking about sort of that mythical picture of the kind of masculinity image of, you know, the man putting up the shelves and all of these things that we think of the alpha males. And I think 
gladly I'm seeing that that's washing away more and more, but it's obviously takes a few generations where we're allowing men to just be into whatever they're into. And some will still be into putting up the shelves and that's fine too. Some will have, you know, a handy kind of um, eye for, for tools and things like that. That's fine. But there's plenty of men who don't want to do that. And they can feel really difficult kind of thoughts and feelings hooking them saying, I'm not masculine enough. I'm not kind of a manly man. And maybe, uh, you know, in hetero couples, maybe thinking that my wife or my, my girlfriend is going to think less of me uh, if I'm having to hire someone to do this rather than putting it up. And that's coming from generational shifts of how traditionally in our gender roles, there used to be only hetero couples, you know, because anything else was stigmatized. So then we're having these kind of uh, polarized gender roles where man goes to work, is the breadwinner, woman stays at home, is the homemaker. And we're shifting all of that. We're putting that all upside down and allowing women and men to be individuals and pursue what they want to do. And that's going to take a few generations to shift. You know, we're thinking about all the gains that have been made for, for women to be able to go out into the workplace. But then there's still these structures where women who are working mothers feel like they're failing to be a mum because they're going to work and they're failing at work because they're going to pick up the kids from nursery. So mm. it's, it's kind of these unwinning equations and these, these are just going to take a long time to wash away where we're allowing men, for instance, to choose to take paternity leave, for instance, where men kind of dare to say, actually, I want longer than two weeks. You know, I, I don't want to accept two weeks. Um, my wife gets to have this long and I have to take two weeks and then go back to work when I have I can barely sleep. And there's little life there at home that I don't get to get to know. So I think some of these things come with pressures internally mm. where we kind of put pressures on ourselves and feel that we're not measuring up. Hence that self-criticism. And some of it comes with external pressures, like the environments around us still needs to change, still needs to adapt and grow to facilitate for these individual choices. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a very big topic to get into thinking yeah. about, you know, smashing the patriarchy. But it's just a lovely thing to think about at the end of our kind of chat of how hard this is when we think of unrealistic expectations of ourselves and also of our partners that to be the sort of perfect person to be everything for us I think of that sort of how they often can fall from the pedestal down into the pit Mm -hmm. so if you put your partner on a pedestal and I guess that can often happen when women have painted a picture of a man as being like Prince Charming or you know McDreamy all of these things that we see men being pictured as in, in in kind of dramatized tv then he's on the pedestal and he must meet all of my needs. He must be able to read what I want and give it to me before I ask for it. And if he doesn't, he falls down into the pit and I feel really, really disappointed. And that's often what happens when we have a high expectation, disappointment will follow. Yeah. And that's where we have realistic you know, awareness that the guy you've met might be a great guy, but he's human like you and he's going to mess up and he's going to make mistakes and so will you. Mm. And that can be a, a real realization where we then think, our love is not what I thought it was. You know, our our love is not perfect. It's not, you know, we're having issues or we're having these conversations and maybe that means that we're doomed to fail or we're not meant to be um, because we get really caught up in these unrealistic fantasies about Mm. what love should look like and what each partner should be like and how 100% of the time they need to be able to meet our needs. It's not really realistic. Yeah, and and the thing is as well is it changes over time as well as you, from your sort of 20s to your kind of 30s and as you, you know, it, it evolves, and and one thing that I've kind of, one thing that I've learned from the conversations I've had is that certainly, sort of, when you hit sort of the midpoint of life, thirty five to forty five, there's a shift that takes place anyway. So you kind of go, your kind of like obsession with youth and the th- all the things that you're interested in when you're younger kind of drop away, 
and your and your kind of uh, your kind of spiritual growth sometimes takes a different turn in that kind of sort of second uh, second second half of your life. So, but it's 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 what you say about the one thing I've noticed again with with men in particular is that often if they've suffered from kind of depression or anxiety or whatever and stuff, it often creates a a bit of an issue in the relationship in in that in that again they've kind of been that kind of strong guy and then they've gone through a stage where they've been in a bit of a bad place and 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 often that kind of creates a bit of a destabilizing effect on the relationship whereby they're having to kind of sort of uh don't know what the word is i suppose re-establish where they are in the relationship and that yeah. that can often kind of cause friction whereby whereby the whereby the wife has had to kind of take over the reins a little bit more and and, and step forward a bit more while their husband recovers and then mm. he kind of gets up to where sort of or roughly where he was before and then it's like well, hang on a minute I've kind of I, I've kind of been so it's there's this it's this constant kind of balancing act of kind of so who's doing what and 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 how this all falls into place but that's that often destabilizes relationships if one or it may it could be the husband or it could be the wife has suffered from mm. some mental health issues and 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 it, and it creates a bit of an imbalance which then needs to kind of be sort of rebalanced at a later stage if that makes any sense so absolutely i think it's a constant calibration where it's almost like a if you have a if you have a kind of an acceptance that there's going to be turn taking mm. across the lifespan of your life and lifespan of your relationship if you're in a long-term relationship then there's going to be times where you know you're you're both kind of taking you know shouldering the weight of, of things and your responsibilities it's like pulling a sled forward you're both there shoulder to shoulder pulling the sled forward at times bad things will happen to either of you you know we go through losses we go through changes and transitions and things are difficult and it might be that you know one of you needs to jump up on the sled and you need to pull it on your own forward mm. again again coming towards the kind of the goals or, or aims or directions you have in mind in your life in your relationship and then it might be that your partner is recovering, uh, feeling better again. They found a new job after they've been unemployed or they recovered from the health com- complaint, whatever it might be, and they can get down on the ground again. And then you're really tired mm. and then saying, get up. It's okay. You know, I've got this. It's <laughs> yeah. my turn now. Right. And that's this again, kind of a constant balancing act of seesaw back and forth of, you know, whose turn is it? And not in a kind of taking like a score sheet to it and counting points. Well, no, you've had three months where you were unwell. Now it's my turn to take three months of holiday. It's not that. It's just thinking more at, at times you're doing it together. At times you take turns being on the sled. And also when you've been pulling for a really long time up a hill, what I like is the sense of taking stock of the view and getting up on the sled, both of you, and riding it down together. Mm. And that's kind of where we're thinking that's been really challenged for a long time. Can we now just enjoy the ride and just go down the hill it's a bit easier and we have some fun and joy and shared laughter afterwards. And that's yeah. where I think of if you've naturally been pulling up a hill a long time, that is what's going to happen. You will come down the other end and, and go downwards and it will be less friction for a little while. Yeah. And unfortunately, couples' relationships are like that, you know, hills and valleys, hills, hills and valleys and hills and valleys. Mm. When we can accept that that's just normal, it's going to happen. It will take some of the pressure off your per- your relationship to be perfect. You love to meet all your needs, and you to never struggle. And I think when we when we kind of surrender into that and say it's just what it is, it's because at times we're going to struggle, especially as I'm sure you hear on, on you know, all the different interviews you do with dads that parenthood is a huge 
uphill struggle for a lot of people where our satisfaction with our relationships just goes down and we're, we're less satisfied and there's a biggest strain in, in our relationship. That's just statistically going to happen. And when yeah. we can say that, we can be prepared for it. It's like saying, right, okay, that's a big uphill and we're going to climb it together. How should we do this? Mm-hmm. And then enjoying the ride when we go downhill. When you come out of those kind of, when both of, you know, whatever, how many kids you have are over five onwards, then it starts to be a little bit easier when they get into school age. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's interesting because it's like a relay race. And funny enough, because I used to do a lot of cycling when I was younger, I always look at things in terms of the team time trial because uh, if you've ever seen that on TV, so that's where they have to go against a clock and you might, I don't know, in the Tour de France you've got, I think, nine riders, but you've got to get finished with at least five of you. So it's not a case of who's the strongest – you, yeah. you, you've basically got to get the weakest guy over the line with the rest of them. So there's no yeah. point in kind of storming off and whatever. The The idea is is to get everyone kind of round as a team and get over and get over that line with the, with the weakest guy. The fifth guy, I think it is, in intact sort of thing. And so sometimes the stronger guys will be taking taking a pull into straight into the headwind or on the hills and stuff so that, so that the other guys behind can take a arrest in the slipstream and then they pull off and I always like that analogy for kind of relationships because it's perfect it's a perfect analogy for a relationship where yeah. you're where you're protecting one you're protecting you're protecting the other person at certain points you're shielding them at certain points they're pulling at other points and and then you and you're gradually t- you know you're taking that through and off and 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 yeah it's a it's, it's yeah. a good analogy and it's just a team effort yeah it's a team like effort you have to do yeah. it as a team you can't win on your own mm. um, you, you, you do it together as a team and I think that's yeah. the really important thing that a lot of couples get really caught up in that you think that you know you're winning and I'm losing but actually if one partner feels that way the whole team is losing so mm. there's often in you know parenting young children we feel like you know if the other person is winning or they got a better deal than I do I get a raw deal but usually when I sit with people, I see two people who are not exactly feeling like winners. So um, both are hurting, but very in very different ways, even if they're very polarized in their gender roles. And stereotypically, you know, they kind of talked about kind of the uh, the homemaker and the breadwinner. There's actually hardship and strain to each of those roles. They're just very different. And that's mm. why it's so important to talk about protecting dads and, and understanding how postnatal depression or anxiety or trauma shows up differently for men when they have such an inclination to hide it because of the shame and the stigma and when I worked with couples where that's been the case where you know the man has actually not been seen in in you know the postnatal depression it's not been treated or recognized you know can lead to all sorts of difficult things down the line you know actually feeling more like they're withdrawing from a relationship filing for divorce when they're actually there was still love there or even in, in kind of escaping it into an infidelity mm-hmm. because just being with their own experience of that traumatic journey where they weren't recognized it's just so so painful that it was mm. just it's just easier to run away from it so mm. it's really really important that yes we do have more awareness around maternal depression and mental health but we need more around paternal mental health and depression and, mm. and anxiety as well and talking about father's journeys and this gets even further cemented when the children go uh, go up to be sort of reception and school age because then it's you know you're addressing letters to mum right and the mum at the school gate and that's it's partly becomes very heavy mental load on the woman and partly becomes a closed door to the man. So nobody is a winner that way. You know, one becomes excluded and then the other one gets the full weight. 
Um, and that leads up to really difficult dynamics in relationships where the man often wants to be let in, but he's out of practice because society has not let him in. So he then might then make a fumbly attempt at something. Woman who's been practicing this because of society placing it all on her gets irritated and feels, well, I might as well do it myself. And these systematic uh, things get cemented and carry on. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Because the other thing as well is, is, it, is uh, <laughs> you see that in the school scenario as well, don't you? When there's a problem at school, you know, uh, mum may well be kind of more sort of used to kind of dealing with the school whereas like and, and I'm guilty of this as well I'm going to put my hands up to this like my wife is kind of quite sort of she's very patient and whatever at school whereas I'm kind of like I, I've got <laughs> my patient level patience levels with schools aren't the same as my wife's or I'm kind of like I'm more black and white and I'm like actually so to why is this not being done or why is that not being done sort of thing i see it more kind of black and white and so if and so if um whereas she may well be more kind of polite and conciliatory i will be kind of like well, why is this not being done and when is it going to be done and when are you going to mm. tell me when it's going to be done i'm kind of a lot more blunt because just because that's just because in 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 kind of my kind of line of work that's just how you get results you you you, you have to be you have to, you don't sort of pull any punches. You just say, "When's it going to be done? How's it going to be done?" And and I want you to tell me that it's that, that it's going to be done. So you're you're kind of you're used to holding people to account with with very little wriggle room. And so sometimes when you're dealing with different institutions that don't operate that way, you're kind of like mm-hmm. it kind of yeah creates some sparks sometimes put it that way so <laughs> tricky dynamic and i guess it's it's again coming back to kind of a societal structures and, and gender roles there that you know often women are more penalized if they are outspoken mm. like that or if they're placing demands or if they're kind of more frank and and women societally speaking obviously have been more socialized to to be appeasing and people pleasers because keeping the peace and, you know, using kind of EQ skills is something that women are more rewarded for, whereas Mm. men are more rewarded for getting the job done, being fixers and things like you said before, kind of man gets shelf up on wall, gets job done. Um, And it misses out the full um, range of emotions in in both genders and the full complexity of being a human that we all have capacity for both. For being the peacemaker and for being the uh, the problem solver. Yeah. So I think any time where we get pitched and told into this is how a man should be or how a woman should be, then we get into trouble because mm. it's more about what kind of human do I want to be, regardless yeah. of the gender I've been, um, I'm kind of socially constructed into. Mm. Interesting. It's been a fascinating conversation, Ricardo. We've covered a ton of stuff. Uh, I think we've <laughs> covered pretty pretty much all of it. But uh, it's been it's been very interesting to find out how you know how this all kind of deconstructs and 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 the parts that compassion and uh, you know self compassion and also uh, dealing with these different kind of things that can under that can pull the rug from underneath relationships such as criticism etc have an have an impact and and also how we can recognise how we can begin to change some of this stuff as well so it's been really it's been really cool what is the best way for people to find out about you if they want to uh find out about the work that you do link up with you on social media reach out to you ping you a message or whatever 
Um, so if you Google the Thomas connection, so that's in my surname, Michaela Thomas, mm-hmm. the Thomas connection.co.uk is my website. And you know, that's the social media handle I use on Instagram, um, on Facebook, um, Twitter. So that's where you don't find me there. I'm on LinkedIn as well, Michaela Thomas. And if you go to my website at the moment, you can also read more about my book. So the Thomas connection.co.uk forward slash the lasting connection mm-hmm. has info about the book, which you can order on Amazon, etc. as well. And I've got a new course coming up very shortly, which is called The Compassionate Couple, which is building on the book. Uh, so I'll be kind of bringing that live into sort of um, bring it to life, I should say, into a 90 day course where you can create some new habits together with your partner, developing love and compassion for yourself. Like we talked about self-compassion as well as your partner. So dealing with your inner critic, learning to soothe yourself, understanding and making peace with your past and breaking some of those behavioral patterns. So you can learn to communicate better, make better decisions together with your partner, working better as a team. So that course is coming out on the 26th of April and it will be sitting on my website after that. Excellent. Super. Uh, And I'm going to ask you one last question that I don't prime any uh, guests that come on the podcast for. And that question is this, what is it in life that gives you meaning, Michaela? Yeah, I'm going to just say it without overthinking it. It's helping others. Mm. I've always been a helper. I've been in psychology half my life. I've wanted to help people since I was a young child. It's just helping others Mm -hmm. gives me meaning. Excellent. Love it. And it's a very, it's a, it's a very apt and, uh, an appropriate one for for someone in your position because i can sit i can tell that you that you give a lot of thought and uh consideration for for uh for helping others that's for sure that's for sure thank you very much for joining me this evening once again and uh and i wish you all the very best uh with your uh, new course that you've got uh coming up and obviously the book for people listening and watching check the book out it's an excellent book and it is and it will give you chapter and verse what you need to do to uh to build that uh, lasting connection in your relationship. So thank you very much, Regina. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care. Cheers. A big thanks to Michaela Thomas for joining me. If you want to check out her book, it's called The Lasting Connection. You can check out her website and Compassionate Couple 90-Day Course over on thethomasconnection.co.uk. If anything resonated from this episode, link up with Michaela over on Instagram and Facebook. It's easy to see how relationships can slip into a bad place, and often it comes down to the simple fact of how couples are communicating. Often, this comes about from bad habits, and it's interesting from the discussion I had with Michaela how much our upbringing and where we were brought up has an effect on this. What I find fascinating is how you can also use mindfulness and you can leverage the techniques of mindfulness to ensure you remain present when you're having interactions with your wife or partner. One thing that was a surprise to me was how your own perfectionism and in making small tweaks here and there to improve your overall relationship and how you interact with your partner really does have a massive impact And you can do this despite the normal ups and downs of a relationship without putting so much pressure on yourself. And I think this is how the whole aspect of perfectionism comes into it. There's also a video of this interview over on the Guild of Dads YouTube channel. And you can link up with me over on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook using the handle at Guild of Dads. 
I'm teaching you how to follow a simple system and plan, just like many of my guests, in order to transform all areas of your life so that you can live more purposefully with much, with much greater fulfillment and meaning, at the same time as becoming the man and dad you always wanted to be. It's all in my ebook, The Dad Blueprint. You can grab it free at guildofdads.com forward slash dad. That's dad in capital letters. In order to have a positive impact on the world, we improve ourselves and inspire others. The fee for this show is that you share it with others so that they may benefit from anything you find useful or interesting. Now, if you want to help me gain more visibility and following for Guild of Dads, the best way to do so is leaving a review and rating over on Apple Podcasts. By all means, subscribe in your favorite podcast player of choice, be it uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. It doesn't matter. The main thing is, is that you find a platform that you're happy to listen through. There's growing numbers of people listening and uh, dads tuning into the podcast on a week-on-week basis. So I want to thank you guys for supporting what I'm doing here. If you want to get involved in the discussion, there is also a Guild of Dads Facebook group. There's a number of guys over there on the Facebook group now. I think there's over 300 over on there now. And they're having interesting conversations about different aspects of being a dad. And you can also get support and a group of guys around you who are going to support your wins and celebrate your wins along the way. So it's a good uh, a good group to uh, join up with that. That's the Guild of Dads Facebook group. Hopefully you find something insightful in every episode. So share it with dad you know. In the meantime, live a life of vision, action and meaning. Apply what you hear and we'll see you next time.